Hello everyone, this is Giulio Prisco. Today for this episode of the Turing Church podcast, I am in conversation with, uh, I may have troubles pronouncing her name, but uh, she goes by Galaxy's Gal. And uh, can you tell me how to pronounce your name? By the way, welcome. Thank you so much. Inara Tabir. Inara Tabir. Do I pronounce it right? Perfect. With a little bit of Italian flair, so it's better. I'll take it. <laughs> That's great. And you have a beautiful background with a verse by Leonard Cohen. There is a crack in everything. Uh, that's how the light gets in. Very true. So we met, uh, I think, last week for the first time in an online gathering hosted by TerraSem. And uh, I was very much intrigued by your... Uh, Double side advocacy of both transgenderism and uh, space expansion. These two things uh, uh, should go together. Agreed. Um, unfortunately, they don't. As a matter of fact, in uh, many sectors of today's uh, culture, um, the right of transgender people and the imperative to become a multiplanetary and uh, in the future interstellar species are not seen as uh, two faces of one coin as, the, as they should, but they are seen as uh, two things that, uh, culturally speaking, go very much against each other. I find that very lamentable, and uh, it's one of the things that uh, I think we should change. But, uh, well, first... Uh, do you agree on that? And what's your uh, explanation for it? Absolutely. So for me, I'm looking at this from two different perspectives. I think we have to look at first principles from that's how where I come at this thing. So when I look at transhumanism or being transgender or the transsexual movement, and I look at the movement to make humanity multiplanetary, these can seem like disparate things, but actually at the core, they all carry the same central value. The idea that we take control of our own future, that we create and author our own future. Humanity at our very core is uh, transhumanist. So the very first humans, when they started using fire to protect themselves, to uh, guard against the elements, to cook their food, they were making a stance against nature. They were saying, I'm not going to be subject to my environment. I'm going to alter my environment for this new life that I want to live. So I look at that and, and we can go from that moment to the idea of escaping gravity with, you know, this massive system of propulsion and rockets and lifting off the planet. And even from that point, we can look at, you know, gender and sex and the constructs that we're faced with that and our own biology as a prison if we don't have control over it. So for me, it's all the same principle. Humanity is always at our best when we are shaping our own future when we are pushing against the limitations around us. And so in that sense, all of these aspects that I you know, am involved in, both you know, transsexual, transhumanist, the space movement, it's all about taking control of our future, shaping it, and ensuring that we're not at uh, the mercy of our environment. Right. Uh, well, as a matter of fact, let me share this. I have uh, given uh, many talks about transhumanism, and I always start like this. Uh, anticipating the question, what the fuck are you talking about when you say transhumanism? I just go like this. And they say, 
This is transhumanism. Why? Because uh, without uh, glasses, um, I mean, I would be able to read this screen because it's big, but I wouldn't be able to read. This is what allows me to read and write and do things that biology says that at my age, I shouldn't be able to do anymore. Mm-hmm. And uh, instead of that, I do. So this is the simplest, I believe, example of uh, the benefits of uh, intervening somehow on human biology. It is an extremely simple example, but uh, I think it works. And actually, this is uh, transhumanism. Uh, back um, Really, I would 90- say... Sorry, go ahead. No, no, you go ahead. Really, I would say that the word transhumanism is a misnomer, because really, if you think about it, what we're describing when we talk about transhumanism, it's funny you talk about the glasses, because I often cite the same example. I say, I've been an active transhumanist since eight eight years old when I got my glasses. Um, But really, what we're describing when we talk about transhumanism is human nature, human nature to expand and change and grow and adapt everything around us and not to be content with everything. So really, it's like trans nature, not transhumanism, because we're transgressing nature we're pushing beyond nature, and uh, that's what it means to be human. I would say that transhumanism really just is how humanity pushes forward. It is our natural state of being. It's nothing um, radical. It's nothing extraordinary, other than the, the obviously the outcomes that we we arrive at. But um, people are terrified of it because it's put in a context that's alien to them. But when we talk about things like glasses, for instance, we can demystify it and we can help it become more approachable for people, for sure. Sorry about that. We can make it more approachable for people for sure. I think it's it's about reaching into what they understand as far as limitations go and showing how we can surpass those. So for instance, you know, uh, biology wise, people will say like, oh, you know, um, you're not a woman because you weren't born in a female body. And so we, we have to look at biology. But then I say to them, like my biology starts off one way. It doesn't have to stay this way. So if I look at the glasses example, biologically and genetically, I'm supposed to be basically blind. My family were all blind. Without my glasses, I can barely see, but I'm not willing to accept the biology. Um, As a trans woman, I'm not willing to accept my body being in control of my existence. I'm going to shape it to be what I need it to be. And the same thing goes with space travel. People People will often say, even people in the astronomy world will often say, why are we bothering going to space? Obviously, Earth is perfect for us and we should just stay here. But it's just not enough. For those of us who have the spirit of adventure, it's not enough. We have to push the frontier. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm now writing a little something that uh, I will put out in a few days. And uh, the title is uh, Space Expansion Comes Before Space Exploration. What do I mean by that? Okay, space exploration is cool. You know, there is water on the moon and water on Mars, uh, things on the moons of uh, Jupiter and Saturn, the James Webb Space Telescope, science, beautiful image. But uh, I mean, why should I really want to know all these things about the universe? if I didn't think that that's where we are going to live. If it was only about space exploration, then I think I would kind of agree with those people who say that we shouldn't spend that much money going for space missions when there are so many 
things on earth that need to be improved if it weren't for this, you know, final teleological cause of uh, the imperative to become multiplanetary and then interstellar, I would agree with them. But uh, as a matter of fact, I think that uh, expanding into space is our destiny as a species. It's a beautiful universal imperative and we cannot uh, oppose this imperative. This is my take. Uh, I call myself a space fundamentalist. <laughs> I like that a lot. Yeah, yeah, the multi- you, what's that? Would you call yourself something like that? I call myself a spacer, but really, you know, for me, I look at things a little bit differently than a lot of the public do when I'm talking about these things. So at the Multiplanetary Society, which I founded, we talk about migration, exploration, and settlement, MES. And it's really about, you know, we say multiplanetary society, but we don't just mean planets. We mean, you know, ships, we mean space stations, we mean asteroid colonies, you know, settlements rather. So it's everything. It's about getting humanity out there, but it's not about looking at the earth as one place and space as another. When I think about our planet earth, I think about somebody in the corner of a room and they're facing the corner of the room and they're saying, I have all these problems and there's only these finite amount of solutions in this little corner. And you're all, uh, you know, you're all misusing our resources for all those things over there behind us. And it's like, no, just turn around. If you just turn around, you'll realize that you're in a huge room with lots of resources and your problems can be solved by looking at the bigger picture. So when people say things like, why go to space when we could solve bigger problems on earth, like ecological distress, ethnic conflict, uh, scarcity, any of these big things that need to be solved. I first of all, I value the fact that they want to put these things forward. But secondly, all of those are the result of one thing, us living on a very finite resource base and ever expanding. So those problems are never going to go away. No matter what you do on this planet, there will always be these huge problems because of this sense of scarcity. We live in a planet of scarcity, even with lots of resources, because, you know, if I were to take a few friends to my house and I were to say, Everyone sit down. Here are some sandwiches. There's a plate of sandwiches. Everyone help yourself. I'm going to go get some drinks. Everyone is calm and you're going to politely take one sandwich and you're going to chat with people. Now, if I take the same people and I lock them in a cage, I kidnap them off the street and I throw them in a cage together and I take the same sandwiches and I throw them into the cage and lock the door and I say, this is all there is and that's all you're going to get and you can't get away. Suddenly they will kill each other over an extra sandwich. So this is the problem is that if we want to solve any of these huge systemic issues, we have to stop limiting ourselves to being in the tiny corner of the room. We have to turn around and realize that we belong to a vast cosmos, that we live in a huge cosmos and Earth is a tiny town in those cosmos. Then all those problems are much more easier solved. We do have a lot of work ahead of us, obviously. Earth is not going to be comfortable or easy, but really life is not supposed to be comfortable or easy if it were our bones wouldn't hold up, our muscles would not work. So the sooner we embrace this understanding that we are part of a vast cosmos and that Earth is a piece of it, then we can get to the real work of solving those critical problems. And I totally agree on that. Uh, um, I was looking at your Twitter and uh, seeing that uh, you raised uh, funds uh, for sending uh, young uh, queer people to space camp. Is that so? Correct. Yeah, we have a program with Gays in Space to send LGBTQIA youth to space camp. Oh, congratulations for that. Uh, have you already raised the money? So we have $30,000 at this point. 
Um, we've gotten some donations and we had one of our fans actually approach us and give us $20,000 to get started, which is amazing. Um, but we do need a lot more. So three, it's about $3,000 a student or a, a child to send them. And that's us figuring in flights, transportation, meals, those kinds of things, plus their tuition. Our goal is to make sure they get from the, they go from their home to the camp and back without any issues in between or any needs in between. So um, we're looking at, like, basically, we're looking at the fact that the very first openly queer astronaut to go to space was in 2021, Anne McLean. And she didn't go openly. She was actually outed by her ex-wife. So if that hadn't happened, we wouldn't even have an openly queer astronaut. Um, we had Sally Ride and a few others, but they were always posthumously right. you know, out. But um, that's a critical problem because when you're leaving out a huge portion of your population that thinks differently, you're leaving out a lot of resources and, and new perspectives that could be valuable. So um, right now we have uh, the money we have on us right now, we have about enough to send maybe three or four kids a year um, for the next couple of years. We'd love to send 20, 30, 50 kids a year, 100 kids a year. We'd love for other organizations to come help us with this. We'd love to have SpaceX and Blue Origin and Axiom and others, you know, decide to sponsor a group yeah. of kids every year because- if we can get an entire generation of youth that would normally be left out to realize that they have a place in this industry, we can really change things. Oh, yes, that's uh, really cool. Are you sending them to one uh, edition of a space camp uh, specifically for them or uh, to uh, one uh, for the general public? So ideally, we'd like to have our own cohort. And that's because a lot of these kids may have never left home before, never may, may have never been in a group setting where they're known to be LGBT. And so we don't want any safety issues. And for that reason, we're talking to Space Camp right now about building our own cohort out for our kids. And so I anticipate raising more funds. So I'm hoping we can send at least 10 to 12 in this first round of the scholarship. And that way we can kind of, you know, create our own cohort. But that all depends, obviously. That sounds good. Is there, uh, is there an age limit? 18, I there guess. There is. So we're trying to get the kids between 14 and 17 that way that there's no issue with them aging out before the process is over. And is that only for the U.S. or worldwide? Um, right now it's only the U.S., but we intend to grow this thing out to be global because we don't want things to be only accessible to one area of the world. So right now, with our bandwidth, we're able, because we're all volunteers, and if us gets paid, we're, you know, kind of a, a small group of people, but we want to grow this thing. We'd love to have chapters all over the world and have resources We and we're going to expand it. So we called it the Inclusive Space Academy because we don't intend this to be a one-off you know, scholarship. We intend to build maker spaces, summer programs, scouting programs. We want to build an entire array, array of opportunities, mentorship programs. So we're hoping it starts here and then grows. And then of course, having it globally will help help as well. This sounds very cool, and um, I wish you the best. It's uh, an example of the kind of projects I think that should be brought forward. But haven't you been, or uh, do you think you perhaps will be uh, accused? Uh, I'm going back to my, to, to my first point. Could you be accused of, um, how to say, consulting with the enemy? Or something like that? Well, I mean, space does not change quickly as far as the industry goes. So I've addressed this issue many times. When I look at the root of it, you think about how the space program began in America. We had the Sputnik scare. 
And based on that, you know, Russia got the Sputnik satellite into orbit. It was the first human created object to go to space. And for some people, this was amazing. One of the ladies I've spoken to recently who was in NASA back in the Apollo era said that as a little girl seeing this thing in the sky, she said humanity had put a star in the heavens and she was inspired by it. But many people saw this as a national security threat. And so we had the creation of both NASA and DARPA at the same time from this Sputnik craze, Sputnik scare. And so you look at that's how really we started the space race. And when I think about all the great things that happened in the Apollo era. I also have to critique the limitations or the ways in which things should have gone, I think, in my opinion, should have gone a lot differently. So when you look at the Apollo era, the public saw this beautiful masterpiece of a national myth being created. You know, these astronauts were larger than life, godlike, basically. They took photos in front of Corvettes and they were fighter pilots and the stories were outrageous. And so the whole nation and large parts of the world were dreaming with us in this national myth. On that end, we were able to get the entire nation, other countries galvanized behind this mission and people would cancel their plans and have family barbecues to watch these launches. And, you know, Kennedy said, we're going to put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. This was all, you know, epic. But it all it all came to basically the point of we got there first. It was always about beating the Russians. And for me, that's just not good enough. And if you look at what happened, you know, basically after we established this dominance in space, it kind of fizzled out. And NASA has been on retention. I mean, they've done some great things, obviously. I'm a fan of the achievements they created. It's not enough to be putting robots into space. It's not enough to be analyzing soil samples and looking at water. That's not going to change humanity. It's not going to make um, us a multiplanetary species. So we have to go well beyond that. And I think the issue is that all these systems arose out of that national security bubble. And so they're very protective and they move very slowly and they change very, very slowly. And because of this, you see like the, the typical dialogue that's happening in the streets and even in the political system, LGBT rights are at the forefront and they're being spoken of, they're being analyzed, good or, for, good or for worse. People are talking about them and thinking about them and we're having change based on it. But in these old systems that change so slowly, there just isn't room for that. So I, I still deal with problems where people hear about me, they know about me. I do a lot of work in the aerospace world and um, they'll be brought into work with me and they'll say, and it's happened a few times. Uh, I'm sorry, but if I work with you, it could damage my prospects or it could damage my brand or, you know, I can't get involved in political stuff. And basically by me being transgender, I'm a political bomb for them. Mm. I'm I'm a packet of issues, but there's a lot of people who don't think that way. So there is progress. It's just most of it's happening on the private industry side or even more so on the community side for space. So, yeah, I would say. There are people that will look at what I'm doing, and I've actually had some responses on LinkedIn already, actually. <laughs> Someone, I think it was this morning or yesterday even. Um, there are people who look at this and see it as a threat. They'll say things like, why do you need to be singled out? Why do we need to give LGBT youth something special? Why can't it just be anyone that goes? And from them, from their perspective, they're thinking about this as if you know, I'm playing favorites or singling kids out for no reason because they don't realize that Whenever a society has been stacked against you and you've been intentionally excluded, it's not about you didn't get the right break. It's about intentionally being excluded by the system. It takes extra force. It's like trying to break gravity, right? So I think about this force working against the LGBT community as gravity holding us down. And the only way we can break orbit is if we have massive propellant, 
massive push to push us there. So it's not the same as the straight community, you know, so that perspective is one I'm trying to be gentle with and trying to help people who say those kind of things understand where we're coming from. So they realize that this is not just a matter of everybody just do everything they want. It's a matter of our community needs the extra push to get there. Uh, yeah, I see your point and uh, agree. In fact, I very much look forward to seeing the first, uh, for example, transgender people walking on the moon. They would be great role models for everyone. But uh, uh, my question was rather meant, uh, you know, in the other direction, meaning, uh, have you been criticized from within your queer community for uh, aligning yourself with uh, something like space, that uh, uh, space flight that is too technological, too driven by military interests, as you said, too white, too male-dominated, and all these things. I'm sure you oh. see what I mean. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I definitely have seen that side as well. In fact, with Elon Musk, it's quite a bit. You know, Elon Musk is a human being who has some some things I agree with and some things I don't agree with. And of course, his, you know, his space program, the early I watched as the space industry transitioned on Elon Musk. The first thing was basically like, oh, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's silly. He'll never make it like, you know, poor silly guy. And then as he started getting traction, it was like, oh, this guy, you know, he has some strange ideas. You know, we should probably try to avoid that. And then as he got more and more um, successful, it was like, well, you know, he's going against everything we stand for. He's a, he's a threat to all of us. We shouldn't be supporting him because supporting him is breaking our system. And then eventually they couldn't ignore him. So then it was, I remember being in a meeting years ago and someone said, now I know we're not supposed to like Elon Musk, but, and it was just this concerted sense of he's a threat. We can't back him, you know? So eventually that became, that, that situation got to the point where you couldn't ignore him and it didn't matter if you liked him or not, he was here to stay. And he was the forefront when it came to humanity going to space and in the society being extremely excited, SpaceX is the reason I would say that the majority of people know about space these days because they're excited about the the car being thrown into space and the flamethrowers. And it takes a little bit of the like PT Barnum method to really get the society right. engaged. So, but that being said, I would say beyond those kind of issues the industry had with him and, you know, kind of us being limited in that way, society has um, limited us in the sense that people will say, oh, you're supporting Elon Musk. Well, he's a slave driver. You know, he doesn't treat his employees right. And same thing with Jeff Bezos. You know, Amazon is a, a work mill and people are not treated correctly. And so there was early flack for those things. And those are valid points, but I'm not in charge of their labor pool. I'm not interested in Amazon. You know, for me, it's about space. And then with Elon Musk's recent escapades, you know, very vocally being opposed to the trans community, for instance, um, I do get a lot of like, how can you support him? He hates us. I don't support his views. I don't support the way he he's um, his views on trans people at all. Um, I'm interested in SpaceX. I'm interested in Gwen Shotwell and the amazing work that she's doing and all of the amazing people that are building rockets. But I mean, how do we separate, you know, those components of it? Oftentimes when you're involved in a fight for your rights, things can be very black and white out of necessity. So it's basically like if you support trans rights, don't even support anything over there on that side because that's the dark side. But for me, I take a more nuanced approach. I want to assess every situation, you know, where it sits and, and where the actual reality is. And that can be complicated. 
and I have gotten flack. I've also gotten flack um, in general. People see the space industry as very patriarchal, very regressive, very militaristic. You know, all of these are true um, to some degree. But at the same time, this is progress. We have to push those systems to more accepting terms. I don't want to walk away from space. I want to make it more um, progressive. I want to be there to change the dialogue within. I can't just walk away, you know. Right. So um, in your recap of history, you have uh, pointed out that uh, first uh, Elon Musk was seen as a threat by from uh, the legacy aerospace industry and contractors. And uh, then, perhaps now, he uh, well, not, he's not seen as a threat uh, by industry because he's the industry himself, essentially. But he is seen as a threat from uh, certain sectors of uh, today's uh, liberal left. Well, I would say he's still seen as a threat by the legacy industry. So Northrop right. Grumman, for instance, Lockheed Martin, these kind of organizations, companies that are basically NASA light, that are uh, you know, very intimately entwined with the NASA system, they definitely still see him as a threat. And now it's become, I think the, the rhetoric has been ramped up again because now he's seen as, you know, um, uh, an open target. It's seen as okay to target him again because of the recent issues with Twitter. So Capitol Hill, he's become persona non grata in a lot of circles there specifically. So they do see him as a threat still, but at the end of the day, they've gotten to the point where they're trying to take credit for his work. <laughs> they want to take credit for right, his models of reusability, for instance. They um, are trying to start, they're trying to, they're starting to use the same sort of dialogues, but they really can't apply it within their own models. So it seems awkward, but you know, you can see how he's impacted them. Right. And the fact remains that uh, many people in the liberal left seem to hate him. True. Now, going back to what you said, um, about uh, the fact that Elon Musk is against trans people. Mm, you know, I do follow these things. I do not intervene in politics that often, but uh, I do follow these things pretty closely. And as far as I am aware, Elon Musk has never said anything explicitly against, and I underline against, uh, trans people. Uh, I think, from what I have seen, that uh, his attitude essentially reflects that of uh, J.K. Rowling. And that would be like saying, uh, okay, I have uh, nothing against you people, you do whatever you like, you know, uh, you decide all the love, uh, acceptance, and all that, but I do have some little reservations here and there. This is what um, it seems to me is uh, the attitude of uh, J.K. Rowling, and it seems to me the attitude of Elon Musk as well. Mm, you correct me if I have if I am wrong, but he never said anything mm, against uh, trans people at all. Yeah, so he does. He does make comments. He does. Uh, yeah, he does make comments against trans people. In fact, he has a transgender daughter. Yeah, I know. So, you know, he's got issues there as well. He has made comments on Twitter. He's specifically addressed like the pronoun issues and mock trans people on Twitter. And in, in, in that sense, there's a few I could highlight the comments at some point. But 
Um, J.K. Rowling is a very different stance, though. J.K. Rowling is very actively opposed to trans people and works against trans people's rights. She funds uh, TERF, which is Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminists. She funds TERF organizations. Um, she's very actively working against the community, and she's progressed like very harmful stereotypes in her works against trans people. So it's the same thing we look at throughout history when you have a group of people that's scary and who are the chosen outsiders for that generation. It's the same sort of things. They're coming for your children. They're coming for your women. Mm -hmm. They're going to take what's yours. You know, so it's the same thing. We look at like African-Americans, you know, um, during the Jim Crow era, the idea was that they were all going to rape your women and hurt your children. Um, same thing. You see it throughout history. Any group of people, you know, the Jews in Germany, they were going to take your money, take your jobs. I, my own family, my, I have, you know, my mother's Mexican. Mexicans in Arizona are going to take what's yours. They're coming to get what's yours. They're going to rape your children. They're going to cause crime. They're going to take your job. So it's, it's the same sort of fear of being displaced. So with J.K. Rowling, her whole view is that trans, specifically trans women, trans women are going to displace cis women. They're going to displace women who are real women in her eyes, and they're going to take their places. And so she puts this harmful rhetoric out. And when you're talking about trans women, it's a very, 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 very small portion of the society. There's just no, there, there is no, there are no numbers there to be able to displace women in society, cis women. So that rhetoric that she puts out there in groups like hers, it, it makes trans women out to be the boogeyman, to be rapists and murderers and secretly men invading women's spaces. And that leads to real violence in the streets. So we just saw last week, Brianna Jai and, and the UK, 16-year-old girl, she was a trans girl, she was murdered in a park. And um, when, when the news first broke, they were talking about this young woman, Brianna Jai, who'd been murdered. And then as soon as they found out in the UK that she was a trans girl... Then they stopped using her gender and they started using her old male name intentionally. This is someone's child who had been murdered, a 16-year-old child. And their hate was so severe for trans women that they did this to a dead child. Like that is the kind of hate that leads to real pain and suffering in the world. And it starts with this kind of rhetoric that J.K. Rowling is putting out. And that's the issue. I love that she wants to champion women's rights. I just don't think that to do that, she needs to destroy the trans community. Right. Okay. Um, I didn't really intend to discuss, <laughs> to discuss uh, J.K. Rowling, but let's uh, stay with J.K. Rowling for a while because uh, um, I have the impression, and again, correct me if I am factually wrong, that all these things that you're saying um, are things that have been said about J.K. Rowling. I read these things on Twitter all the time. But, um, you know, it's nothing that J.K. Rowling has ever said. I have the impression that these are things that have been uh, uh, put in uh, J.K. Rowling's mouth by people who wanted to make uh, exactly this argument. And uh, replying to a comment just a couple of days ago, I was uh, reading, uh, I think, the only essay that uh, J.K. Rowling has ever written about the issue, where, uh, you know, she starts saying uh, things about uh, trans people that uh, are not uh, insulting, not uh, confrontational, not enemy at all. So my impression is that... Uh, 
she could be perhaps not an ally, but uh, a neutral observer, at least. But the fact that uh, she doesn't uh, entirely buy a narrative that uh, some uh, cultural operator wants to sell as dogma is what pushes people to say that she's entirely bad when all the things that they are referring to are things that she never said herself. Now, you mentioned a description in one of the books that she wrote as Robert Galbraith, right? I don't even remember the title of that book because as a matter of fact, I don't uh, like... uh, those books. I didn't like that much Harry Potter either, think of that. But, uh, you know, I went to read that book, which took uh, many hours of my time, because I wanted to see if uh, she was really portraying a trans person as a murderer and a killer. And I found out that uh, it's not true at all. I mean, all the things that they say that she put in the book, all those things are not in the book, at least not in the version of the book that I have read. So as far as like... You know, I read a book that I found essentially boring just to find that out. (laughs) Give give me that. That That is commitment. So, I mean... Yeah, give me that at least. Yeah, yeah, that's amazing. Let's go back to this idea of her, her own words. So... One of the ways that she's entered into the debate or the conversation about trans rights is to attack this idea that trans women are removing the word women from society. So we look at, you know, women, let's just start with women in general, right? Typically what's happening, especially in the Western society, I'll just speak for the society I've lived in, um, women are put in this monolithic description. So all women are one thing, depending on who's speaking, you know, like, um, even talking about feminism, there's one way that's acceptable to do to do feminism, depending on who you're speaking to, you know, so in one example, women who stay home with their children, and cook and clean and, and love that life, they're working against all of us, and they're moving feminism backwards. So that's one hostile kind of negative way of monolithizing women from the feminist perspective. On the other hand, we see people who will speak for women as if every woman has the exact same experience in life. So they'll say things like, well, women menstruate. Well, not all women menstruate. That's just not the case. Women give birth. Well, not all women are able to give birth. And so what what happens when you champion, like, you know, we look at a small group of people who've been left out, who get in finally. Let's talk about a dinner party. There's been a dinner party and people have been left outside in the cold, unable to eat. And everyone's feasting at this big feast. And finally, someone gets the door open, either somebody from the inside gets the door open for them and lets mm-hmm. them in or from the outside, they push the door open either way. What happens traditionally when one small group of people that's been isolated gets in, they leave the door open for others. So when we're looking at, you know, the idea that trans women have um, fought against the ideas of genderizing bathrooms, that conversation has led to a much bigger fight over why are we genderizing bathrooms in the first place? Why are we even segregating people in public bathrooms when we could have stalls that are private and wash our hands together? So same thing when we're talking about women who menstruate this idea, um, someone 
we've been changing this language, especially in the medical world, to people who menstruate. Because when you just say women and you assume that that means that all of them menstruate, you're leaving out a huge portion of people. So she takes issue with this clarification and she sees it as trans women stealing the terrain of cis women. But really what it means is that we're trying to be more clear and and we're trying to include more people and we're trying to remove this like stereotype or this one way of looking at experience. So that's one way in which she's harming the trans community. I would say the trans community deserves a little bit of credit for that movement. Well, not all of it, obviously, but this is something that needs to happen. We need to stop thinking about women as one thing and everyone has to fit into that one box because when we do that, when we create a paradigm that doesn't include everybody, it's a false paradigm and people get damaged by that. So um, she's very much about the language. You know, she doesn't see this as a good thing. You know, one of her quotes was um, from Twitter, people who menstruate. I'm sure there used to be a word for those people. Someone help me out. Wumbin, Wimpund, Wumud. Opinion, creating a more equal post-COVID-19 world for people who menstruate. She posts this article. So she also writes, if sex isn't real, there's no same-sex attraction. If sex isn't real, the lived reality of women globally is erased. So here's this idea, again, that because the trans community is questioning the foundations of the ideas of sex and gender, that we're erasing women from existence. When in reality, the ideas that have been put on us based on sex and gender have almost universally bound people to paradigms that are one size fits all in a world where it's just not the case. So where she sees the trans world as a threat to these systems, I would say we are a threat to those old systems, but we come here in peace. We come here to try to expand our understanding of people. And we have to get to this point where people are individuals and we all have our different experiences. Women with AIS, for instance, don't have female chromosomes. They have male typical chromosomes. But because of their body's inability to process androgen, they're born with vaginas, they develop breasts, they're very feminine, they don't grow very much body hair, so they progress naturally, physically on the outside as women, even though their genetics will say that they're male if you test their genetics. So this is one example of many where these boxes just don't fit the full picture. I see. And uh, by the way, I don't disagree with anything that you just said, but I still had the impression that um, the attitude of J.K. Rowling toward this issue is not as negative as uh, you say, but, uh, oh, you know, uh, perhaps you're just right and I'm just wrong. Perhaps uh, I should read and writing more carefully. Uh, and that uh, applies uh, to Elon Musk as well. So I think this starts to get to the heart of the hostility between two cultural movements that should really be friends. Uh, by the way, uh, another example of that is, um, you know, between uh, the space enthusiast community and uh, the climate community. Um, I mean, I was, I have, I'm always uh, very puzzled by the fact that uh, many people who love Elon Musk hate uh, Greta Thunberg and the other way around. Well, as a matter of fact, you know, uh, 
they should be seen as a lice because uh, you know, on the one hand, staying in uh, staying uh, close to today, Elon Musk is doing a lot for the environment. Mm. Not well, everything, perhaps not more than everyone, but I think it's safe to say that he is doing a lot. And if you look at uh, the mid-term future, then, uh, I mean, what can be better for the environment than eventually moving all uh, heavy production facility of the Earth? Absolutely. Which is uh, uh, something that I'm sure Elon Musk has in mind. And people like uh, Jeff Bezos have said explicitly that this is what they have in mind. So I'm always... Uh, very confused by the fact that many people who defend the environment seem to hate Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos. But as a matter of fact, they should acknowledge at least that uh, they do good things for the environment. And uh, very similar things can be said, I believe, for the issues that we are discussing now. Absolutely. So I would say that there are a lot of issues from, in my opinion, when it comes to the environmental movement as it stands today, other groups of environmental movements. Oftentimes when, when we're talking about these environmental movements, they're not actually based on preserving the environment. They're very anti-human in their basic form. And then they come from those that sense of anti-humanism and they wrap it with a small veneer of caring about the environment. Because when we look at, you know, the planet itself. If, if we, let's really get down to the basics, right? So when people say they care about the world or they care about the environment, when you start questioning them and get down to the very basics of this, it's really not the environment they care about because it's irrelevant. If we're gone, if you take all the humans off the planet, what's the point of us even caring about any of this, any of these resources? There's this idea that the planet is some sort of mother goddess and it's alive mm-hmm. and it's uh, greater than us and we have to serve it I don't, I don't accept any of this, first of all. I start with a very pro-human stance. And I think anyone that ultimately is talking about preserving our resources, they're getting it either firsthand or secondhand from this, no, this understanding that we need these resources. Humanity needs these resources to function. But at odds with that is their very pro anti-human stance where humans are cancer, humans are a pariah, humans are bad. And so I've even had them say things like, well, we shouldn't go to space because we'll just screw something up in space worse, you know? If you want to talk about environmentalism, we need to talk about the basics of why do we care about the environment? What is our relationship to the environment? Um, what, what are the biggest problems we currently face? What are the causes of those big problems? What are some of the solution bases? So for me, I look at you know Jerry O'Neill's vision of moving heavy industry off planet. If we move all these heavy industries that are the biggest polluters off planet, then we don't have to deal with the disaster here on this you know precious biosystem. It is a beautiful precious biosystem, but only in the sense that it provides resources to humanity. For me, it has to start with our species. So when I see them at odds with people like Elon Musk, it's because space has been put into this like di- um, you know, diametrically opposed box to everything they believe in. But exactly, really, it's not. Exactly, exactly. So it's like, it's either Earth or space in their opinion. But to me, it's like, we look at the fact that satellites are the reason we know about the RLC shrinking. When I was a child, I remember reading National Geographic and seeing the pictures, the progression of the RLC shrinking. And so we know about the way that the climate is changing. We understand the way the glaciers are moving and shrinking and 
the way that the water salinity is changing, all of this is because of things like space satellites, for instance, and all these teams working around the clock. We look at some of the biggest solutions we could utilize, like space-based solar power, which could be phenomenal. We can harvest so much more solar power in space and beam it to the planet and provide energy for everyone. And that is something that would be far more successful than any sort of solar system we have on the planet. So we have this issue, first of all, with billionaires. We look at billionaires as unattainable. Um, We can't connect to them typically. And so people are fearful, suspicious. They feel like, and, and I'm generalizing here, obviously, but this is a big problem in society. If someone has a lot of money and you don't have very much, then they must have done something terrible to get it because otherwise you would be there with them. You would have gotten there too. And it's just because you're such a good person that you didn't get rich like them. And so there's a psychological need to demonize, and it's, it's really common, to demonize the ultra wealthy. Then you take space, and space is even more unattainable, even more of a problem to connect to it. The average person doesn't see the relevancy. They don't understand what it has to do with them. They don't understand how it could impact their life, and they don't think they can be part of it. So then you combine these two things. You've got Elon Musk. He's a billionaire, first of all. Mm-hmm. So then he's evil in their mind from, the, from day one. He's evil because he's rich. And then he's involved in space, which is scary and, and un, not understandable. So then it's a compound problem even more so. And then it's easy to say, like, you know, I planted a tree, so I'm good. And he's going to space, so he's bad. These are these, these things we have to break down. We have to break down these exactly. understandings. Exactly. These uh, boxes that you mentioned. Uh, things uh, that I used to call uh, cultural packages mm-hmm. that, um, you know, uh, if uh, I have uh, subscribed to this cultural package, I have to swallow it whole. And if yeah. you if you subscribe to this other cultural package, then you have to swallow it whole. And uh, if we subscribe to two different cultural packages, we cannot even talk to each other. Because everyone has to think that the other one is bad in order to stay compliant with his or her party line. This uh-huh. uh, is, uh, I think, the root of many bad things that uh, we can see around us uh, right now. You know, uh, back to Elon Musk as an aside, you know, from my point of view, um, it may be that he has done extremely bad things to achieve his weight. He may have martyred people in the street. I don't think so, but let's pretend. He may have done the worst thing that I can imagine, but that doesn't change the fact that he is using his money to do something that I think is good. Well, and you look at the way that people question him, and this is the other issue where I'm talking about the space billionaire issue that's unique. There are loads of billionaires in the world. There are tons of billionaires out there who are living on yachts and partying day and night and living frivolously and not helping humanity at all. And nobody questions them or even knows who they exactly, are. Exactly. The only reason people know who Elon Musk is, is because he is pushing against gravity, the gravity of society. He is doing something that's going to spread us into the cosmos. He's pushing boundaries. And so people are, they know about him because he's doing these great things. I would say, instead of demonizing a, a man who happens to be wealthy because he worked his butt off and got there, um, and, you know, instead of demonizing him, let's look what he's doing and, and see the value there. And if you want to criticize a billionaire, I'll make you a list. I'll make you a quick list of 10 billionaires that you can go and criticize in the press and have fun with that because they're low lives and they just happen to be wealthy. Um, but you don't see this in the automotive industry. We don't see it in 
um, Hollywood. Hollywood is a really good example. Hollywood spends $600 billion a year. That's the budget as it is currently, the average budget, budget in Hollywood. And for what? To promote people sitting on their butts, watching fantasy happen in front of them. And I, Hollywood has its value. I'm just playing devil's advocate. If we're going to criticize uh, you know, the space industry for wasting resources or for doing things that don't matter, Hollywood is pre- creating entertainment at extremely high m- amounts of money. And how many producers, directors, actors are filth? How many of them are harming people? There's loads of terrible people in that industry who have loads of money. No one is singling them out. So it comes back to, you know, and, and honestly, people who would say they would boycott J.K. Rowling. I'm even going to call my own community out. People say they would boycott J.K. Rowling, boycott Harry Potter. They're going to boycott SpaceX or they're going to boycott Amazon because of Jeff Bezos. Are they doing this with Hollywood? Are they doing it with the booze companies that have so much money? Like they're not maintaining the same sort of like integrity standards across the board. They're only highlighting these people that are daring to change things in a huge way. And I disagree vehemently with J.K. Rowling. I'm just saying, you know, if we're going to do this, it should be across the board. Right. So so far, we have uh, been discussing the fact that uh, these two communities, the space community on the one hand, and uh, the transgender right community on the other hand, but let me also uh, group it with the environment community. And uh, let me call that liberal left community. It's slightly imprecise, but at least it's short. We have been discussing the fact that the space community and the liberal left community seem very much uh, in uh, conflict with each other. And I think, and I believe you agree, that there is no essential fundamental reason why it must be so. Yeah. We should be, re- we sh- uh, these two groups should really be allies, not uh, enemies. What uh, do you think uh, we should do to overcome this very sad state of affairs and uh, promote at least uh, a good uh, collaboration between uh, these two worlds? Yeah, that's a really good question. So when I look at the state of things currently, we're, we're coming to a point where we have massive civilizational differences that aren't going to be able to be breached, abrogated, compromised on. And that's a huge problem for me. If we don't have a way of reaching a middle ground, um, a nuanced middle ground, what's going to mm-hmm. happen is it's going to end up in physical war. It's going to end up in fighting in the streets, guns, violence, blood. Um, exactly. I see the polarization of society has gotten extremely severe. And I can look back at the origins of this. You know, we look at the way that systems can manipulate large groups of people. And you need a lot of fear and you need polarization. So you look at the way that the UK, for instance, polarized the Hutus and Tutsis against each other, the way that the British polarized the Palestinians and Israelis against each other, the way that they polarized Catholics and Protestants against each other, the way that the North and South in in America were fighting on these cultural distinctions. So the, this idea of these two groups, it's, it's duality. This, this duality is not new, but the way that it's become so entrenched and polarized Western civilization has over, become overbearing. And it is a new trend in my mind. It's gotten to a new extreme. So the only way we're going to be able to address any of this in its 
really a bigger issue is to get back to the root of this, the polarization. We need nuance. We need nuanced conversations. You know, I feel sometimes as a trans person, I'm like told what I'm allowed to believe. So if I'm a trans person, um, if I say, okay, I'm trans, then suddenly I'm handed like a booklet almost, you know, not a physical booklet, but almost like I'm handed a booklet and it said, and it's like, here are the things you're allowed to believe. Here are the things you're allowed to stand for. Here are the items you are allowed to purchase. Here's the no-no list. You know, like this problem is, and it's on every side. It's not just my community. The right wing is same. And it's the same way. You know, if you're a Christian who votes right wing, you have to hate trans people. There are plenty of people out there who vote for Republicans because of their fiscal beliefs, but don't hate trans people. But in their communities, it's like, well, you have to take it all or nothing. Right. You know, exactly. all of us need to start standing up against this idea that our ideas are presupposed based on these differences about ourselves. And we need more nuanced conversations. I don't want to hate anybody because they don't understand me. I oftentimes will go into right wing groups and I'll say, here I am. I'm trans. Let's have a conversation. If you need to scream at me, if you need to cuss at me, do it. And then let's talk about what's what's going on here, why you're so afraid of me. And I've had some moments where people come in and like flash, you know, naked photos or play horrible music or threaten me, you know, and I've had moments where there's deep conversations. And so for me, it's important that we have these conversations. When I think about, for instance, people who are afraid of trans women in women's bathrooms. Growing up, I hated changing in the boys' gym room. I, at school, I was forced to, and it was horrible. It was demoralizing. It was uncomfortable. It was not something I wanted to do. I've always seen myself as female. So I would go in the locker in the stall of the bathroom and I would change. And of course I got bullied because I didn't change in front of everybody. So I can relate when people are afraid of trans women in the women's bathroom. It's a primal place. We're vulnerable. When you're naked or you're using the restroom, you're in a vulnerable stance. And so even animals have this fear of being attacked when they're in those moments. So we can address the primal fear, first of all. It's real. People are afraid of being vulnerable in these places. Secondly, I can see that when people are talking about this, there's typically an, an authentic concern for women's safety. So I can respect that. I have three daughters, and I would want my children to be safe, and I would want people to care about their safety. So I have to commend them in the sense that they do authentically care about women's safety. But then I need to help them understand that trans women aren't the risk to them. You know, when people say things like trans women being imprisoned in, prison in women's prisons are going to rape women. First of all, where were they when the majority, overwhelming 99.999% of women being raped in women's prisons were being raped by other cis women? We have to address that. If you authentically care about those women, let's end rape entirely. Let's figure out how we get to that point. And I don't have that solution, but we should have that conversation. But it shouldn't be that you suddenly care about this cause because now trans women are introduced. So if you do, if you were, if you were campaigning for the last 20 years to make women's prisons safer, I'll have that conversation with you. You're coming from an authentic place. But if you suddenly attached yourself to this concept of women's safety in prisons, the minute you found out a trans woman was locked up with other women, then I know it's not really that. It's really that you're afraid of trans women. So I'm willing to have nuanced conversations. We do need to have nuanced conversations. I think our community has some work to do in the sense that we are casting everybody who doesn't understand us in the, the role of the villain too often. And um, that can come from a place of exhaustion when you don't have the bandwidth to sit down and have these conversations because you're struggling for survival. It puts us in a state of scarcity where we can't function properly. But let's get somebody, let's get people on the front line that can have responsible conversations and dig into the nuance. 
This really sounds like a plan. Very, very, very good way to proceed. Sorry, I was interrupted because uh, uh, my daughter called and I messaged her to call her mother instead. So summarizing, um, we could promote some more, uh, perhaps, uh, not integration, but at least uh, tolerance and willingness to talk to each other between the space community and the liberal left community by just having more nuanced conversations and uh, trying to understand where the other side is coming from. I can totally agree with that. Totally. Yeah, I think diplomacy, diplomacy always requires you to be able to see the other person's perspective. Right. And- and to look at your situation from their perspective so that you can have a real dialogue. Right. Uh, you know, I would say the impression if you take uh, things like uh, the bathroom issue, mm-hmm. um, I think there are so many very simple solutions to that that just... Uh, you know, uh, just have to pick one. Now, this particular solution would not apply to locker rooms, but I mean, what's wrong with single-use bathrooms? Yeah. Um, I mean, uh, using exactly the same space. Instead of doing one hole with uh, four uh, cubicles, you just do the four cubicles and that's it. You even save space like that. Okay. Uh, I think I have lost your voice. Sorry, I'm about to lose you. Right. I'll, have to, I'll have to sign right back in. My computer came unplugged. Ah. Mm. Let's. Uh... I'll be right back. Right. Okay, I'm waiting you online. So I believe Inara had some um, computer problems that. Uh, um, I hope she's uh, fixing quickly. And uh, this is a very interesting conversation, by the way. I'm back. Now, Thank you. You're back. What was the problem? There. Uh, uh, we had it. Power we had issues. issues. Yeah, with the power. So, right. yeah, I think, um, you know, you're really hitting on this. For me, I think the bathroom issue is, is simple in the sense that we can have stalls. Like, if you know, I live in Europe. You live in Europe as right. well. Um, our stalls are much better than the Americans. Whenever I fly to the States, I fly to the States many times a year to work and the stalls are very not private. So you sit in the stall and there's a huge slit anywhere where there is an, as a corner and people can see you using the bathroom. So I don't like it anyway. I don't, I, I never, this. I never liked that in America. Yeah, it's awful. But here in Europe, we don't have this situation. We have stalls that are sealed, yeah. you know, and if you're in the Netherlands, it's even more so. Like it's basically a little cubicle room where right. it goes, you know, there's no way to get it CN. I think we just make stalls more personal. And then we have big open bathrooms. Anyone can exactly. use. Exactly. We can all wash our hands together, you know. Exactly. And so that, I mean, that's a cultural thing. Here in, in Germany, we we have the public saunas and everyone strips naked. Men, women, doesn't matter. And everyone is in the saunas together. They don't know each other. We just, we don't sexualize the human body as much in Europe as they do in the States. And so- this cultural difference, I think, is a part of the problem, that people are so terrified of the human body in America that you'll have, like, on television, spinal cords being ripped out and blood and guts and violence, but they're afraid to show nipples, you know? And in Europe, we're exactly the opposite. We don't want right. violent content, but 
if we have sex on TV, no one really cares. You know, it's not a big issue. So I think we have to address these cultural pieces and we need to find a way to where people do feel safe, but we can't exclude someone from using the restroom. What about the father with two young daughters who wants to take them to the bathroom and doesn't want them in the men's room? You know, um, should he not be able to take his daughters into the bathroom? You know, this is, there are these, all these problems that come up when we genderize bathrooms that just don't make any sense to me. Right. Um, at the same time, uh, what, uh, I mean, we can discuss all so many good solutions for tomorrow's world. But in the meantime, we live in today's world. And the reality of today's world is that many women, uh, let me not even say women, many uh, people would be very uncomfortable to be in a bathroom with other people who do not Uh, belong uh, to any group that uh, they feel they are a part of. This, I think, is a general case. And at this moment, it does apply to women very much. So reflecting on this and realizing that there is no one-size-fits-all solution to this problem, I think that the best short-term solution would be to just leave the decision to the owner of a facility, which means, you know, I can adopt a certain policy and uh, the place next door can adopt uh, another policy. And, you know, whoever likes my policy come to my place and whoever likes my neighbor's policy go to their place. Mm. What, what would you think of something like that? So let's look at the history, right? So I'm going to compare it to another situation that was very similar There used to be segregated bathrooms in America based on yeah, race. Yeah, that uh, was exactly the example. Yeah. This was so, made to me the last time I made this argument. Exactly. So you had segregated bathrooms based on race for the same kinds of reasons. This idea that because yes. of because of biological differences, yes, exactly the same. people with darker skin were scary and a threat. And so they had to use different bathrooms or even that they would contaminate the bathrooms. You know, there are all these awful ideas based on biological imperative or biological, you know, supremacy or whatever their issue was. So the same thing happened and we had to overcome that because it's not something that society can be built on. We're trying to cordon off entire groups of people for something as basic as, you know, urinating. I look at, this is another good example. In America, if a man pees on the side of the road, he can be arrested and charged with a sex crime What? and he can register. Yes. So he can, re he can be, he has to register as a sex offender. So you have one man who rapes a woman violently in a back alley And one man who pees in the side of the road, and they're both labeled the same way, sex offenders, and they both have to register, and their neighbors have to know that they're registered as sex offenders. This is the same thing. So in Europe, men pee on the side of the road all the time. No one cares. This is, this is the issue we have to get over, is this fear of our biology. We have to get over, and I know people are uncomfortable, but their being uncomfortable isn't enough to create policies. You know, th this, is, this is what I'm trying to get to, is that we need to help them grow up. And I hate, to say, I hate to say it so frankly, but biology is not scary. We all have it. We all use the bathroom. You know, it's not a scary thing. So I don't think I would want a society where we could segregate the bathrooms. We'd go right back to the same thing. You know, oh, well, if I don't like left-handed people, you're going to have to use a different bathroom. It's my facility. It's not the way a society can function. So I think we need to get to some real solutions. And, and from my opinion, that's going to be let people get on with their business, let them pee and get on the way, you know. And if someone rapes somebody, arrest them. I mean, rapists are bad, but they're in every group. And if you look at the majority of rapists, they're not trans women. 
the majority of rapists are men. The majority of rapists right. are, you know, white men from Christian backgrounds. We can look at all the numbers. And if you want to, you know, talk about who's more likely to rape, that's not trans women. It's especially not trans women who've had surgeries or who've had hormones that have, you know, made their bodies not function in that way. Like these are not people who are a threat. No, of uh, what you said, there is just one thing that I really dislike, which is this, uh, we must help people to grow. Uh, it gives uh, all sorts of uh, very bad mental image to me. The thing is that, you know, you can think that you're doing something coercive and authoritarian for the best of the person you're doing it to. And perhaps you're right. But not always. Mm. Oh, absolutely. Even even saying it, I, I feel that on my own tongue, actually. Yeah. But I, and it's I really don't know any other way of putting it because this fear of the biology has led to so many problems in oh, the yes. past. You know, it's the same thing. This understanding of this very simplistic understanding of biology is why women were subjugated to men, because we understood yeah, biology. Yeah, like the idea was that men's biology made them superior, and so they should be in charge. And right, but, women, know, um, women could be committed to insane asylums, you know, you biology. Know, I, yeah, I understand and I agree. But uh, I mean, the thing is, I don't want to make people agree with me. Mm, I, would oh, like yeah. if, I would like if people do agree with me. Yeah. But, uh, you know, the idea of uh, doing something to force people to live in compliance with my own rules is something that looks like, uh, looks really like a nightmare to me. I understand that. I mean, you can see that I'm a libertarian attached. Yeah. Uh, well, let me I, reverse it. Let me reverse it. So and when we're talking about compliance, right? So when I'm talking about this bathroom issue, let's take my original example of segregation based on race, right? Mm -hmm. um, lots of people to this day do not believe in people of different races being together, mixing, working together, playing together, being friends, having relationships. There are still people who believe bathrooms should be segregated. So somebody like that is going to be very uncomfortable in a bathroom where that's not the case. You know, they'll see somebody from a different race and they'll get terrified that person's going to hurt me. And we still have this situation today. So it isn't that we force them to comply. It's that we stopped considering their backward views when we created policy. So it's... Okay, but look, let's go to the most racist little town in the southern United States, for example. And let's suppose that someone in that little racist town opens a restaurant with segregated by race bathrooms. Mm -hmm. Would that restaurant have any customer at all these days? I hope not. So I grew up in a, a tiny town with 3,000 people. Right. That was very racist, very backwards. Right. And so it was in a, that little town. Yeah. That little so town would have plenty of, of customers. Today. Yes, today. Yeah, absolutely. So there are loads of places where that is the case, where they could... And there are places like that in America, especially where there are very backwards ideals that are enforced, where you have, you know, racists running people out of towns and refusing services to them. Like that still happens. Today. And today, to this very day, yes. And the problem is, is that, uh, first of all, it's bad, period. But the problem is, is that that can scale up very easily. You know, when we tolerate this sort of thing, that's the kind of society we're going to end up with if it isn't hampered. So for me, it's like, I'm not forcing them to comply, but we shouldn't base our civilization off these ideas. 
These are inherently dangerous ideas. They're going to leave people out. They're not going to include more people. They're going to exclude groups of people, you know, when they just need to have basic functions taken care of. And the, the infrastructure of a society belongs to everybody. So when you're mm -hmm. talking about, you know, excluding people from bathrooms or from restaurants, the, the restaurants that they're running are benefiting from the roads that were created by the people, from the trash services, from the shipping lanes, from the entire supply chain, from all the farmers, whatever they're getting is a, is a product of the entire civilization, which was provided to them by people that they probably don't agree with or don't think should exist. So it's not okay for them to benefit from all these public um, cooperative things and then try to cut groups of people off. So what if I were the critical piece of the supply chain that ensures they get their food and then I can't even use the restroom? Like that mm -hmm. just isn't, it's not a, not a way to work a society. I think, uh, I hope, uh, I mean, these are uh, very complicated and very sure. difficult issues. And uh, I don't really think anyone has the solution right now, but um, perhaps we can agree that uh, the only way to get uh, closer to, uh, I don't even want to say so final solution, but you know, something that will work for a little time mm -hmm. is what exactly what you said, to have a more uh, nuanced conversation among people of different ideas. Can you agree on that? Oh, absolutely. This is What we're doing now is a small piece of that. We need to disagree. We need to disagree. Exactly. Exactly. And we need to come from different points of view. Exactly. And we need, but we need forums and we need an understanding so that people can do this more often. And this is the thing is, so many people take disagreement or cultural differences or different ideas as a threat to each other mm -hmm. and they get they get angry and they scream and they come to blows and right. what we need is structured formal conversations where people can disagree safely and they can hash out these these things if we do that like i don't have the solutions i don't know the solutions to because this is a small piece of i know you know this like the dichotomy and the the fragmented society that we're living in, there's so many points of disagreement that are starting to coalesce in different sides. And if, we, if we're not careful, we're, we're running very quickly towards a situation where civilizations are going to clash and the only answer is going to be blood in the streets. It's going to be one side annihilates the other if we don't start taking this situation seriously and having those dialogues. So I think part of the solution is going to be starting those conversations and starting the conversations in a sense of, how do we get this, this society to work for most people? You know, you can never really make a society work for all people, but how do we make a, this society work for the majority of people? Um, how do we make it as, as, you know, large of a paradigm as possible and then dig into the conversations and then hopefully we find solutions together? Exactly. Um, you know, I am not really very much into conspiracy theories. Mm, I don't take any of that seriously. There is one between brackets conspiracy theory that uh, sometimes I think about that huh? when asking myself what is the root reason of this civilization clash and cultural polarization, which is at extreme levels today. I ask myself, how can that be? How can we live in such an insane situation? And uh, the simplest answer that I give myself 
is that uh, things are like that because someone is making money with it. Do you ever think something along those lines? No, because I'm looking at systems, right? So we look yeah, at complex systems. systems and complex systems, the way that they're set up in our world are constantly evolving and trying to find, like there's this active seeking in a sense, trying to find the right fit and the right system. So evolution demands that we fragment constantly. It demands that we try, like really the worst thing for human evolution would be for all of us to be exactly the same. Exactly. Because that's a limited system that's prone to die. You need diverse systems and real diversity means we disagree. And real diversity means that civilizations are fragmented and against each other to some degree. You need these different paths to be taken. So I would say it's inherent to the very fabric of existence that constantly you're going to have this upheaval. You're going to exactly. have these changes happening and you're going to have, you know, the, the evolution of systems so that they can be more robust and they're more strong. They're stronger. They're more adaptable. So we have to have that. That's the basis, really. And exactly. if we plan, if we can plan our society around this understanding of constant change and constant evolution, then we can adapt with those changes. It's when we don't, when we're we're basically, you know, if you have a landslide coming down the mountain and it's going to, you know, completely submerge the city that you live in and you stand out there with a sign that says no, you're just going to be buried by this landslide. You have to accept the reality of change and you have to flow with that change. Right. And that's what we're not doing. Whenever we're at odds with these great systems changes, that's what we're doing wrong is that we're not adapting and we're not accepting adaptation as the root. And this is where transhumanism comes in. Transhumanism embraces this understanding that we are constantly evolving. And so we might as well take control of that evolution to whatever degree we're able to and plan ahead for it and try to right, adapt with right, the flow of right. the changes. There is a very example of that in uh, some uh, mathematical books about uh, chaos theory. And the example is very simple. If you want to balance a stick on the palm of your hand, it's normally impossible unless you move your hand to kind of follow the movement on the stick in a way that cannot be calculated in advance, but uh, you know, uh, is something that is much easier to do than to explain. If you want to uh, balance a stick on the palm of your hand, you find a way to do that. And so um, I see it as very much analogous. And the conclusion would be that, uh, one, there is no solution. Two, we have to live with the fact that there is no, there is no uh, static permanent solution. And it does take continuous adaptation. And the process never ends. And that's something I completely agree with. Well, it's like earthquakes. You know, if you look at some of the houses that are right, engineered... Right. In earthquake zones, a lot of the buildings engineered in earthquake zones are engineered to absorb the shock yeah. and to move with the movement of the earthquake yeah. so that they're more, they're more able to withstand those changes. So we should be looking at, I think, you know, this is the, another core thing that we can look at with transhumanism, right? A planned city is exactly what transhumanism is about. It's about looking at, you know, looking ahead to what you want to have as an outcome and then breaking that down backwards and building out something towards those goals. So With our societies, if we're responsible, instead of allowing society to happen organically, we'll start looking at what sort of future we want, our, we want to live in and building towards that. And so we should be creating civilizations that can absorb the shock of constant evolution and change. And I don't know what that looks like. I can't give you a quick graph of what right. that is, but we can start having those kind of conversations as transhumanists and look at how do we get our biology to be 
you know, more adaptable and more, um, I guess, serviceable to those changes coming, our cities, our civilizations, all of it, we should be looking towards that. And that's how you can handle these great upheavals that are going to happen continuously. This right. is how you avoid a Roman, a Roman Empire collapse. And when you come to biology, then I think our uh, uh, long-term expansion into space uh, will help. Because at that point, we will have to make very radical interventions on uh, human biology. Like, for example, I don't know if you... Uh, are you into science fiction? So I, I have been. Yeah, I, 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 it's part of my work. I have to consume science fiction, you know, right. the, the Hollywood side of it. There, are, there is a lot of uh, science fiction that describes uh, very radical um, biological modifications uh compared to which anything that we can even imagine today bioforming is uh, right is extremely simple and naive well, uh, i like this idea i like the idea of bioforming as a right. as a partner to terraforming right well i think the solution eventually will always be a combination of the two you terraform a little bit there and bioform a little bit here uh, look, I don't want to take up too much of your time, but I wanted to end with um, um, spirituality. You consider yourself a spiritual person. So do I. Can you elaborate a bit on that? Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I've, I grew up in foster homes. So I was raised in a lot of different uh, types of homes, different cultures and religions. And so Early on, you know, I grew up with Mormonism and Buddhism and paganism and Baha'i and Islam and Christianity of different versions. And so being thrown into these kind of tumultuous changes constantly, I started having to compare. I had no choice but to compare these different systems. And because I was aware, I think more acutely of the way they interconnected and the way they were different, the only real solution for me was to find the core of the spirituality involved and find what was valuable in that because you know, none of the outer casings of religion appeal to me at all. None of these like, you know, eat this food on this day and God will love you kind of ideas. I just, I'm not down with that. So for me, I look at the world as this, um, like really the root of, of all of existence is this data stream, this living intelligence, this living information that, you know, pre predates or, or pre uh, forms, you know, energy and matter. It's, that's what we all come from. So for me, it's this constant search for our potential. I look at the complexity of living systems in this universe, and it's amazing. I don't need to know whether or not we were created with a purpose. All I know is that we are created with the ability to go after a purpose. And so for me, that's enough to seek one out and to use what we're, what we're given. I don't care if some intelligent creature made me with certain abilities for certain reasons. All I know is I have the ability to reach for higher possibilities. And so I feel compelled to do that. And I feel a deep connection with the cosmos as I reach out there. So for me, the highest spirituality is this deep interconnection with other people, with other systems, with the cosmos itself, and with the possibilities that I can evolve and learn more, strive for more. So that's, that's what spirituality is. It's this great adventure where I can be more and I can interconnect more, you know, it's just, that's what I want to focus on. Yeah, that's great. Like, um, I can say something like that as well. I do uh, arrive at 
uh, spirituality coming from science. I'm a scientist by training. I think that I, I don't come from a family with uh, believers. We very much consider religion as something that other people do. But I started uh, discovering between brackets all these things as an adult, not as a child, by coming from the direction of science. I'm a physicist by training. And finding so many parallels between uh, what science is beginning to show us about uh, the hidden subtleties of the universe and a core of spirituality that is essentially common to all religion. Um, as a matter of fact, I go even beyond that by looking for uh, uh, parallels between uh, my own spiritual ideas inspired by science and even the traditional core of established religions. Because you know, if you read the Bible or the Quran or uh, uh, Advaita Vedanta, you know, all that you do find many of the same things. Not exactly, but you do find many of the same things in what uh, Huxley called the perennial philosophy. And uh, I think we should build uh, bridges between uh, people with a scientific or uh, and transhumanist mindset and these uh, so many millions of uh, believers all over the planet. So they thank very much for the dialogue between uh, science and religion as well. How about you? For me, you know, I'm fascinated by the fact that so many people find solace or connection in religion. But when I look at it, you know, I, I'm again, I'm going to break down the constituent parts. Like I think the majority of what people are getting out of religions are things like the community. So you know, I, I grew up in a Mormon area and I watched a lot of people leave the Mormon faith. And often, by the way, uh, uh, by the way let me interrupt. If you grew up with, in a Mormon area, are you familiar with the Mormon Transhumanist Association? I'm not actually. No? I haven't heard of that. Oh, my. Okay. I have to do some homework. Uh, transfigurism.org. Okay. You'll find it interesting. Okay. Know. I'll look it up. I didn't hear about that. I've but been, I, uh, I mean, I'm not a Mormon at all. I didn't even know what a Mormon was before joining the Mormon Transhumanist Association, which happened more than 15 years ago. But uh, that's uh, one of the communities where I really feel at home. I'll send you, I'll send, I'll send you all the links. I, I just, I just looked it up. I'm, I'm definitely going to look into this. Yeah, that's interesting, actually. I'm not surprised by that. Mormonism has a, a certain slant of sci-fi to it, actually. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and there are some great things there, but I watched people leave Mormonism and they were terrified because if you leave the Mormon church, oftentimes you lose your job, your I spouse, know, I know. your family, your community. And so I think religion is kind of this um, glue that holds a culture together. Oftentimes, you know, oftentimes you're, you're, you, you can't separate the language mm -hmm. you speak, the, the traditions you follow, the holidays you participate in, the ways you connect with your family and your neighbors and your community all of that is wrapped up often in your religion, especially in areas that are more uh, or that are less likely to be secular, you know? Right. So growing up in like, you know, where I grew up was very, very, very Mormon centric. It was, you really couldn't escape it. Even though we weren't Mormon, we had to live with those standards. So I think for me, religion is oftentimes 
um, maybe good for some people, but I feel it's a destructive force in some ways too. So I don't really, I'm not really down with that. Um, I've, you know, I've just interested, I've just become interested in Terrasim, for instance. And it struck me as very different because usually I've read everything. I'm like you. I've, I know all, so many details about so many religions. I've investigated them a very, in a deep way, you know, not just in the surface. And to this, now these days, I'm kind of like, okay, I've seen it. You know, nothing's really new. It's all just different combinations of the same stuff. But terrorism struck me as very practical in the sense that it's addressing these fundamental issues I have of longevity, of the fact that we just accept death as in- inevitable, and I'm not okay with that. You know, so for me, it's very practical. So I can get down with a religion that is looking at like the human experience. How do we progress? How do we, um, how do we fight against death? You know, how do we change ourselves to be better? These things are, these could be fundamental to some religions. So terrorism in my eyes, um, it's a religion in one sense, but then it doesn't feel like these other things I've encountered. Right. It doesn't feel like subsuming, like I have to sacrifice my autonomy to be part of that. So I am very interested in that sense. But right. um, when you talk about physics, we look at the fight between materialism and immaterialism. And when we were on this cusp of leaving, you know, from the Enlightenment ages, leaving this, envi- this environment where religion controlled everything, we kind of threw immaterialism out with religion as being part of that system. And so we didn't benefit from an open perspective. And now I think we're getting to a point where physicists feel more safe and really can't ignore the immaterialist view of the cosmos. And it often looks very much like a sp- spiritual cosmos. We're getting to the point where we can't separate the two. Right. And in fact, in this uh, you know, explanation of uh, your general attitude toward religion, I think the example of uh, the Mormon uh, church is really very explicative. I have been to Utah five times to go to speak at something called uh, Mormon Transhumanist Association Annual Conference. And they have told me all these things. I know many people who have... Uh, left the Mormon church. And later they understand that can be very painful for them. Um, I think all religion have uh, two different aspects that are very much uh, mixed with each other. One is what I call cosmology. And the other is what I call geography and uh, uh, zoning norms. Cosmology is this, uh, you know, uh, ideas on the fundamental nature of reality and uh, geography and zoning norms are all these things like what you have to do and when, what kind of sex you can have with whom and which days on the week and all these things that, you know, from my point of view is uh, complete bullshit. I don't take any of that seriously. Uh, When I think of a religion, I'm only interested in uh, its uh, cosmology, but I understood talking to my Mormon friends that for some of them, these two things are too mixed up to be able to separate, which is very sad for them because I do know people who have been forced to leave the Mormon church. Uh, Now, this is going to be my last question to you. Do you think... uh, is there any way to reproduce the mental benefits of religion with its sense of community, be part of something bigger than yourself, and all that, the sense of being one with the cosmos, to reproduce all that 
including the hope in life after death. Is there any hope to reproduce all that without all these uh, trappings of uh, organized religion that so many people, including you and I, are uh, very uncomfortable with? Yeah, absolutely. That's an amazing question. I'm really glad you asked that, actually, because this is one of those things I think about when I think about space, right? So on planet Earth, we are very limited with how we can experience life. It's, for instance, you know, where you're born often dictates what religion you fall under. It's not even about the same, the family, like oftentimes your family that you're born into dictates what religion you're in. But um, oftentimes your family may have different opinions, but the area you live in has its own pressures and systems and more. So right now we're in very much like a a non-consensual sort of experience. You know, you have very, you're very limited on how much you can break out of the boxes you're placed in on this planet. When we go to space, when we become a very robust civilization where it's very easy to leave where you are and go to some other settlement and then an O'Neill cylinder somewhere or an asteroid settlement or a, a generational ship, it's easy to, to basically vote with your feet, as it were. You can just leave and go someplace else um, much more easily in space. Once we're set up, I believe it'll be much easier to migrate between these different sort of experiences. Right now, we have a very uh, tight grip on physical location. So every single point of the globe is divvied up and under the control of some system to the point where if you tried to create a seastead or a, a artificial island in international waters, some global government, some you know national government would shut you down because they'd be terrified of setting a precedent of you taking claim of an area that they couldn't control. So we're under the situation where everything is parceled out and controlled. So when you deal with, like when I was growing up, you were dealing with the Mormon church in my small town. They were terrified of too many non-Mormons moving in and changing the paradigm. So they would control who could buy houses even. Like there were many many times when people would try to move into the area and they weren't the right fit. And so the bishop would tell the owners of the house, do not sell it to them. And they wouldn't, you know, we had um, Walmart try to come in at one point and they were going to sell alcohol. And so the Mormon church told the person that owned the land not to sell it to them. And so they wouldn't allow them in. No one would sell to them. So it's this sense of control that comes out of us a mindset of scarcity. If we get to space, when we get to space, when we build an actual robust multiplanetary, multidimensional kind of life out there, then it will be a much different situation as far as that control goes. You may start off in a controlled situation, but you can always leave. That's my vision anyway. I mean, obviously, this is a very optimistic point of view. I'm a very much an optimistic person, but that's that's what I'm looking most towards is if you are a right winger and you want to live a right wing life and you want to exclude certain groups of people, you can go and build a settlement somewhere in space and more power to you. You can live that life the way you want to. I may disagree with it, but then you've got your ability to do it and no one else is going to be harmed by it. If you want to live in any kind of lifestyle, you'll be able to form these kind of settlements in space this uh, that you just said is going to be on video some people won't like it that's okay i mean i i can't i can't waste my energy trying to control the views of others right um especially if they can go off and do it and not harm anyone else you know if they want to say our settlement's only for right-handed people and all lefties stay out i disagree vehemently with them i won't participate in their society but if they're often some asteroid settlement somewhere in the cosmos do your thing you know we have to it's, get to the uh, point where our differences right. don't harm each other. Right. That's exactly my attitude as well. Okay. We will be able to build new religions 
you know, with all the good things of the region, but without the bad things, we will be able to do that once we become a multiplanetary species. But is there anything that we can do right here, right now on this planet? So help me clarify this. What, what is it you're asking? What can we do? Uh, I think uh, religion has, uh, even traditional religions, have something that people need. As you said, a sense of community, but also um, a, I like to use the expression a cosmic vision mm. that gives them the feeling of being one with something that is much bigger and includes things that like uh, you know the afterlife and the hope of seeing your uh, uh, loved one against again after that, without which I think many people, including me, would be entirely paralyzed and unable to function. So these are the good things of religion. Uh, well, we have already discussed what are the bad things of religion. Uh-huh. Is there, uh, and I agree, of course, that once we become a multiplanetary species, we will have so many ways to build new religions with all the good things and without any of the bad things. But is there any way we can do that uh, here and now without waiting for uh, when we go to space? Do you know of any good uh, initiative in that direction besides Terrasim? Yeah, if I were to look at, and I'm still diving into Terrasim, so so far what I see I like, but I have a lot more homework to do, obviously, so I can't speak on behalf of terrorism, but um, I look at the good benefits or the good possibilities. And what's, what stands out to me is the ability to choose your path in life. So the more autonomy we have, if we're in, and again, this goes back to the idea of earthquake proofing a building, being able to absorb the shock. Society does really well in a sense when you control everybody in that society. If you say, Everyone in the society works from nine to five, Monday through Friday. Everybody on the weekends, you know, watches this show and reads this book. Like you can, you can order people's lives to down to the minute and how they do things. And that society will function to a certain degree, but the individual will break down and eventually the society will break down. So for me, any good system that we could possibly build would be one where we maximize autonomy, but we maximize it in a way that doesn't allow the autonomous person to damage the rest of society. So for instance, we could say that true autonomy means I can eat my neighbors. Cannibalism is fine. I can go attack people and eat them as long as I'm more powerful than them. That's full autonomy. I go do what I want. No one can stop me. This is not peaceful. This is destructive. This isn't going to make society flourish. So what we need is, for me personally, I try to seek out this dual combination. I look for um, the ability to interact with people that have similar values to me. It's very important to um, define myself by my values, my morals, my objectives, the way I see the world. And so I want to be able to um, network with people with similar values in, in one sense. Then I also do need pushback. I need to be able to go to certain zones in my life and have people who disagree or see the world very, very differently. I benefit from those new perspectives, but I don't always want to be in a constant state of pushback. So my own my own journey has been to seek out people with similar values on one side and dissimilar values on the other. Um, as a society, the more room we make for differences, the more likely people can do that. The more likely they can say, okay, I agree with three of the seven things you state as critical. I disagree with the others and that's okay. 
um, that's the only real path I see forward. And um, I don't know, that, that's another, it's a bigger issue again of scarcity. People are terrified of someone coming into their community and doing something different to get really down to it. They're afraid that someone questioning the bedrock of how their society is formed will tear their society apart. So how do we make society more stable and able to absorb all the differences? So yeah, there's maybe a possibility there. I'm just, I don't have all the answers for that. <laughs> I think we need an entire salon on this idea of, oh, yeah. making, of making civilization more resilient for nuance and difference in humans. Exactly. We are uh, not going, unfortunately, to have the time now. I'm afraid I have taken too much of your time already. It's a pleasure. So pleasure that uh, is my pleasure. So I'm going to stop recording now. And thank you very much for joining me. Absolutely. I look forward to it again sometime.